Welcome to Swift Unscripted. Swift podcasts give you, the listener, the opportunity to hear the inside story and be part of the conversation about all means all with leaders in the field of inclusive education and school-wide transformation. We are recording a remote podcast. Um, So I'm here at the University of Kansas, and I am recording a podcast on the topic of Swift Technical Assistant Practices at Atkinson Elementary School in Portland, Oregon. So our guest today is the principal of Atkinson Elementary School, Yvonne Dibley, and we are also joined by the Swift facilitator, Laura Miltenberger. So welcome. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Allison. Good morning. So, Yvonne, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell, just begin by telling us a little bit about Atkinson Elementary School and your role at the school? Absolutely. So, I'm in my third year as principal here, and Atkinson is in southeast Portland. It, we have about 435 students. We are a dual-language immersion school, so we have... Uh, basically a strand of neighborhood um, students, and those are students that live within walking distance of the school, Um, so they walk or bike to school. And then we have um, students that are either in the neighborhood or that transfer in for our Spanish immersion program, which we have um, at the K-5 level, and we are a K-5 school. Additionally, we have two classrooms um, that um, basically, we have uh, intensive skills. Uh, it's the intensive skills classroom. So those are students that have either cognitive, physical, or emotional needs um, as well. So I'm super interested to learn more about the Spanish immersion program. Can you tell me a little bit about what that looks like at your school? Yeah, Spanish Immersion started here in 1997, I believe. Um, The leader um, at that time had a vision for um, just a very uh, global vision for students to be global citizens. And at that point, if if my memory serves me correct, we had um, Chinese and Russian and Spanish. Um, here, so it's kind of like a little international school, and part of that um, was also um, supported by the fact that uh, demographically we were a very diverse community. Um, since then, uh, much of the diversity has moved to outer parts of Southeast Portland, um, so we are a much wider neighborhood. And um, we still kept the Spanish immersion part, which has definitely been um, part of Atkinson's fiber um, since 1997. So basically our students come in at kindergarten and they come in through a lottery system. We have 24 to 26 spots available and we have over 150 applications every year for those 26 spots. And um, our students start learning um, all of their content areas in Spanish um, for 90% of the day, and 10% of it is um, the English part. And then as they move towards the grades, the Spanish decreases until finally at fourth and fifth grade, they're at 50% in Spanish and 50% in English. So they're learning content area um, instruction, and they're they're basically um, bilingual by the time that they're in fifth grade. Wow, that's amazing. And what a great opportunity for those students. Absolutely. 
And it also sounds like you have um, some students with some significant support needs at your school when you were mentioning the different kinds mm-hmm. of classes that you have. So I imagine working with SWIFT um, has been helpful for you in supporting mm-hmm. those students. So I'm hoping that you can just tell us a little bit about your experiences working through the SWIFT TA practices, Um, perhaps beginning with your school's vision. What was your process for designing a school vision, and how has that really shaped your work? Mm -hmm. So prior to really um, getting into uh, the work of of creating a vision, um, I came in, and it it was really interesting because our staff was um, very surprised about being a SWIFT partner mm-hmm. school. I think that there, you know, the communication between outgoing principals and incoming principals and really what SWIFT was and what that framework, um, how that could, that could help us, um, wasn't really clear at the beginning. And what they had identified was that we did not have any type of PBIS established. Um, we didn't have a lot of systems established for inclusive behavior instruction. So I actually was very lucky in that um, when I came in as principal, the leadership team that had been established through past principals said that this is kind of what it is to us and this is what this means to us and this is how um, what we are working on. And so I just kind of ran with that since that was where the momentum was. And our first year, we started looking at learning um, those positive behavior supports and establishing tier one interventions. And the first thing we did was to look at a curriculum that helped us um, in both the Spanish and the neighborhood um, strands. Um, so it was very important to us that we were continuing to provide supports in the languages that, that we were supporting here at our school. Um, and then from that, uh, we extended our work to looking at our common areas and then Following the common areas, we um, we looked at establishing those uh, tiered interventions in the areas of academic instruction um, and behavior instruction in the classroom. So this here is really looking at how do we differentiate. We differentiated our work in inclusive behavior instruction, and now we're moving into the classroom to really be able to differentiate our work as we are um, getting ready for a new literacy adoption, and then as we are preparing our classrooms so that we can have inclusive practices for the students that need different different supports, and that they can, we can maximize their time in in a general ed classroom. So, Ivana, on your visioning work that you did way back at the beginning of this, tell how does that kind of overlay the work you just talked about? Mm -hmm. So the visioning work that we did, um, there was a a mission statement um, that had been created, but like many mission statements, um, it's a paragraph that is kind of, it has a lot of really great uh, visionary, uh, I guess, images, but that didn't really mean that much to us. And so my second year, I actually took the opportunity to bring everybody together. Uh, We um, led through some dream school activities, 
we had the help from, you know, University of Kansas and the Swift Center in organizing these activities. And we really just took our time to create uh, multiple versions of a vision statement uh, that were then delineated to three versions of a, mission, a vision statement. And uh, we provided student, or we had student feedback, we had parent feedback as well as, well as teacher feedback. And then that really set us up for um, our implementation vote. Um, so we felt really good about um, how we gathered feedback and how parents um, were, we were communicating with parents in regards to the vision statement. And then when they came here for uh, the annual open house, everybody took part in, in that vote. That's great that you were able to get feedback from parents and students and teachers to really help guide um, the direction of the school. And it sounds mm -hmm. like you guys have really been focusing in on the inclusive behavior instruction and then some of the headway that you made there, you're really tying into inclusive academic instruction as well. Exactly. So really focusing okay, on, sorry about that, focusing okay. just on our multi-tiered systems of support and building those um, from really from the bottom up. Great. And now I heard you mention that um, when you started your role as principal, that the leadership team was really instrumental in guiding some of these first steps that you were taking. Can you tell me a little bit about the teaming structures that you have in place to help support your work? It sounds like you have a good team behind you. Mm -hmm. I do. Um, and the team um, was very representative of different specialty areas. Mm -hmm. um, so that was helpful. And I think where it was incredibly helpful is because most of my career I spent at the secondary level. So um, coming to elementary, I too was learning. So it was a, I think it, it paved the way for more of a distributive leadership model where I was learning along with them and we really chunked it out together and scaffolded our learning together. Um, so I think that that helped create a bond and it helped create relationships and it helped create some trust as well um, because I felt that I was pretty transparent about things that I knew and things that I wanted to know more about and I really relied on their expertise um, to help me as I navigated, you know, being at a completely different level. Um, also, Portland Public Schools is very, um, it's committed to equity and our equity practices. And so there was an equity team that had already been established here as well. And so the way that I looked at those teaming structures was that um, the equity team was more of an adaptive leadership team and we were able to present professional development to our staff members that allowed um, them to explore their personal growth in the area of equi equity and their racial bias and their basically their racial autobiography, their racial experience. And then our SWIFT leadership team was able to really look at equitable practice that are or more in the technical realm. Um, so I think that they, those two teams really complemented each other well, and we were able to move forward in a, at a quicker pace um, because of the two teams. And then since then, you asked about teaming structures. We've had sub-teams that have come from the different tasks and our different goals based on our FIT and our FIA 
um, that have allowed us to really identify and prioritize our next steps for, for the coming year. Sounds like you have some great examples of distributed leadership in place. And speaking of the fit and FIA, that leads to our next question. <laughs> so I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the role that data has played in guiding your decisions throughout this process. So um, Laura and I work on our data snapshots, and so we gather all of our information, and then um, with the leadership team, um, we basically we, we go through our screening process. So we have academic screeners for reading um, in both Spanish and English. So we use Dibbles um, for the English side and we use Edel for the Spanish side. Um, we also uh, use a behavior screener. That was something that came really from this framework and from our work. Um, so we utilize the, the behavior screener to help inform our practice in regards to classroom management planning and uh, supporting students with specific interventions in our classrooms to make sure that we're keeping students in classrooms more so than we are keeping them out of classrooms. And then something that we've actually um, pushed uh, with central office is looking to see if at some point um, from our central office, we can actually attain a math screener um, because we don't have a research-based math screener that we use um, centrally. And so our school actually uses a baseline measure. Um, so we are looking at screening math, reading, and behavior three times a year, um, and we include that information in our data snapshots. Um, but the, the math piece is definitely something that we, we continue to look at. Um, and then with that, we take the data and we have set aside uh, professional development days where our staff looks at data and the data is situational based on things that we're working on. So if we're working on reading, um, then we're going to look at the reading data. We're going to um, disaggregated by race and um, look at who is at benchmark, who isn't at benchmark, and we create uh, our reading groups. And by looking at that data, we've used the screening data to inform our practice, as I said earlier, with our classroom management plans. And we're actually looking at our baseline math data as well to inform what kind of, re of math groups we need to establish and what kind of supports and interventions we need to have in math, um, because that's definitely one of our weaker areas. And then you guys also continue to progress monitor and have exit and enter criteria as well, right, Yvonne? You want to talk a little bit about how that folds in? Correct. So I think we are, because our focus has been inclusive behavior instruction, uh, we definitely have more of the um, criteria, and we're in the development of that exit and entering criteria. For, for example, when we refer a student to a student intervention team or uh, when, when that student becomes someone that needs Tier 2 support. In regards to academic data, we look at the percentage. So if, if our academic data shows that less than 80% of your students are meeting benchmark, then we have conversations that are targeted specifically to core instruction. 
And then, um, and then we also have, and this is the kind of our next step and priority is that as we are looking at a literacy adoption, we're looking at what is the exit criteria or what is a, a, a criteria for students who need tier two interventions or tier three interventions. And what are those interventions in our classroom? So we're going to identify them and we're going to make sure that we have all of those um, expectations documented. So, you know, it's, it's more of an aligned um, structure for our school. Great. And so, Yvonne, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just know that where she was going there, Allison, was uh -huh. um, with their priority and practice planning, they have identified that they need to create an instructional guideline handbook. Um, that puts all these practices that Yvonne has been talking about into one place so that they have a common um, place where folks can go and a common tool that they can use as support. Yvonne, were you, was that what you were getting at a little bit there? Yes, I was. Laura, it says, though, you're reading my mind and knowing what I was going to ask next. <laughs> so I was just going <laughs> to say <laughs> that clearly you're, you guys are using data to inform your practices. You're screening your progress monitoring data and I love that you're using data to guide your professional development. Um, that's exactly what we're looking for. So it's very helpful for our listeners to have those examples. And so I was going to ask next about specific priorities. You've mentioned um, several different priorities that you guys have been working on throughout the course of your time working with SWIFT. But I was wondering if you give me some ex specific examples of how you've um, planned and addressed for some of those priorities. And Laura, that's a great example with the creating the handbook. Are there others, like specific examples that you can just kind of walk through? This is what the process looked like. This We identified as a priority and this is what we did. These were the steps we took. Yvonne, what about talking about last spring when you identified that you needed to align classroom behavior expectations mm -hmm. and using that PBIS model and how you did that as an exit with mm -hmm. your teachers around mm -hmm. that setting and then that whole process that led into back to school and then what you just did here in January. Yeah. So one of the things that we were experiencing um, a while back was we had a particular grade level that had uh, six or seven students that really needed um, some, some, some pretty heavy-duty supports. Um, and part of the conversations that came from that uh, was the idea that teachers wanted and needed more information on trauma-informed care. And so at that point, we had our contact from the Oregon Department of Education and Laura that came in and had a um, professional development session with our staff members um, about trauma-informed care. And what that unraveled for us and where, where this priority basically landed was that there was a recognition that maybe some of our classes had uh, some visual clutter that instead of helping um, students and being an intervention or a reference for students, it was actually a hindrance. And so when I was working with Laura, we took the PBIS handbook and we really just focused in on um, expectations, routines, and settings. And so as everybody was leaving for the year, um, and this was something that during our um, priority and practice planning, um, we went ahead and said, okay, th this, is, this is how we're going to end the year, and this is 
where our, these are where our next steps will be in regards to creating those interventions and inclusive behavior instruction in our classrooms. And so at the end of the year, as everybody was um, finishing up for the year, they were giving a guideline that showed best practice and it showed resources of the research that backed up that best practice um, that explained why, for example, settings was so important. And so it it was really um, supporting the, the professional development that they had had. So they had a reason. They knew why it was important. They went or they left the year clearing out their classroom. So I had a 17-year veteran that actually cleaned out her classroom. Um, there were several staff members that were in there helping her um, declutter the classroom, and it was really great because at the end of the year, she just felt so wonderful to know that, you know, she had different space. And um, then coming in, we actually had quite a bit of turnover from staff members having different opportunities at district level. So I had a third new staff. So I basically just started my year with this is how we ended and this is how we're beginning. So as you are um, coming in and organizing your space, here's some guidelines. Laura and um, our staff member from the Oregon Department of Education also um, gave professional development at the beginning of the year, once again, establishing why it was important to have these practices in place. And so we looked and talked about the settings, um, our routines, and our expectations, which once again just fell right in with all our common language. And then I utilized um, that those guidelines that I provided for them as a walkthrough tool. And so at the beginning of the year, I walked through every single classroom and I gave them tips of, you know, these are the things that I'm seeing. This is clearly marked. These pieces aren't clearly marked. You need to establish these. And that's how we work. So I have different um, colleagues that will come in, and they actually will know, will say something like, how did you get your, your teachers to have such clean and clear spaces? And that was something that, you know, was identified, and we followed through through multiple months and, and multiple techniques. Um, but that for the most part, I would say 90% of our teachers um, have, have classroom spaces that are, that are lovely for students. And Yvonne, that aligned to a district policy around um, classroom expectations and what, uh, what a management plan. Yeah. yeah. And then also talk about that a little bit and then what you did in January when you did your um, okay. behavior screener and that day, what, how you used that data to play into this. So one of the things that I don't believe in is doing a document that just is done for compliance sake. And I really did feel that um, going into classrooms and, and telling teachers how to do a classroom management plan um, starts to hit in on some pretty personal um, routines and, and established norms for people. So I think that I, I wanted to say that because I think that tying it into the work that we had done that year and a half prior, those two years prior, they knew that this is part of our framework and part of what we're trying to achieve. So yes, we have a um, an expectation that all teachers must provide a classroom management plan, but as we were preparing for students to come 
for their next year, we have a system where at the end of the year when we're creating class lists, we are giving information and it's subjected to the teacher as to what supports, academic supports a student needs, what behavior supports a student needs, and then what other information we know about the student, whether it's um, social pieces um, in regards to their well-being with other students or um, IEP needs or if they're um, an English language learner. So all of those um, topics are discussed. And then as we create class lists, I wanted that to be what informed our practice the following year instead of just utilizing them for the class list sake. And so when uh, students or uh, teachers came back in August, we sat and actually had um, uh, our RTI triangle where we had the different um, interventions that we created as teachers and we brainstormed those interventions. And then we listed all of the students that needed Tier 1 interventions, all of the students that needed Tier 2, and all of the students that needed um, some extra interventions with Tier 3. And then in January, we met back as a staff and as we did our second round of screening for behavior, some of them noticed, like, wait, wait, you know, I went ahead and I created this this um, intervention for these students, and actually they're at core now. They don't need those interventions. So they were able to see what was working in their classroom, what wasn't working in their classroom, or what needed to be adjusted. Um, because clearly what what they mapped out for their classroom management plan based on who they thought was coming into the classroom could be very different than who students were, you know, four to five months later. And I hope that's making sense to some extent because I know it's making sense for me because we went through the process. But in essence, teachers were organizing the interventions that they had for the whole class, for some of the students, and for a few and they were able to name those interventions and place them with specific students in mind, which I think that's the key, is how much do you know about a student and what are you going to do to make sure that that student is success successful and then moving forward with that and knowing that it's a living, breathing document that you're going to be looking at that throughout the year. And that was focused around those three matrices that you had talked about in the beginning, the Correct. setting, the expectations, and the, what was the third one? Settings, expectations, and routine. And routine. Mm -hmm. And then also the back-to-school, Alice, I think one huh? thing to really note here is that that PD that she did, it wasn't just the certified staff that were present during that time when they were creating this. Who else was in the room, Yvonne? So we had all of our para-educators. So our para-educators work with um, students that have special needs, and all of our instructional specialists were there as well. So everybody that works in our system, whether they're specialists, instructional specialists, paraprofessionals, and teaching staff. We were all in the room talking about students. Great. That's so important. And that's a great example of kind of tying all of this together. So thank you so much for sharing. Um, as you were talking, I couldn't note, help but notice you referencing some of the different resources that you can called upon. One of our SWIFT TA practices is resource mapping and matching. I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about how you 
identify maybe outside or even internal internal resources that you have available to help meet some of the needs that you've prioritized? Um, I think that's really where this framework has helped me um, as a leader because I think so often when we don't work within a framework, we can come into a school setting and you get into the um, rhythm of day after day and what, what challenges and what opportunities are there for you. But what the resource mapping has done for me um, and the matching is that it has allowed me to really see and identify what we have and what we have at the building level, what we have at the district level, and then understanding what supports we have available to us. Um, and so the more that we got into the framework, the more that we went into um, professional learning institutes or um, you know, the more that we shared with colleagues, allowed us to really start seeing who we could reach out to. Um, and I think that, once again, this goes back to distributive leadership is that so often we, I think, we're put in a position where we feel we have to have all the answers or all the resources. Mm -hmm. And that has been what has been so instrumental in, in my movement to Atkinson is that I really feel like I have a team of cheerleaders behind me where I can call and, I mean, I can just be brainstorming ideas and Laura will say, oh, I have a great article for you in, the, in regards to that or I have this great um, support person that you can contact. And so it, it's just, it's almost like the tentacles just extend um, to so many different areas that, that you wouldn't have available to you. Um, so, and that is all, much of it is situational based on what is happening and what, you know, what new priorities are coming out from the, the practices and the data collection that you have. Um, and some of it is actually being proactive about where you want to go to next and not being reactive to a situation, but really saying, I want to plan this thoroughly. What do you have out there that will allow me to, to be more successful? Great. And I wasn't wanting to put you on the spot, but I was going to ask you about the role the facilitator played in this process with Laura sitting right there and you beat me to it <laughs> by calling her <laughs> a resource and a cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> so, Absolutely. Laura, you're saved. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so, just as we're finishing up here, um, can you tell me a little bit about some of the outcomes you've experienced as a result of this work? And I'm going to brag on you a little bit because Laura already told me that in some of these areas that you prioritize, it's really um, evident in your FIT scores, your fidelity scores, that you can see just by looking at that data, the priorities that you've picked and really focused on that that data, those graphs just are shooting up. But in your own words, can you tell me a little bit about what you think the outcomes or the results of this work have been? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, that it's easy to see the data pieces when you're looking at graphs. And um, when I ended at the at the PLI in in DC last year uh, it was titled you know like basically starting from zero right where our our literal score was zero percent in inclusive behavior instruction and 
seeing the growth of that, um, you know, that's, that's evident um, in what we do. But I, I would like to share what I think happens anecdotally. Um, and what I have seen is that I have a team of teachers, whether they're on the leadership team or not, that believe in the work and that because we are constantly looking at data and because we are sharing and being transparent about the growth that we're doing, the priorities that we're setting, and the tasks that we set out to do, that everybody kind of feels ownership in that, and it's not um, a we versus they or us, or it's not a top-down decision. It's something that everybody really um, gets on gets on board with, and I think that um, the idea of school pride and the idea of um, having individuals know that they're a part of a bigger picture and that they're making a difference, um, I think, has been really instrumental in, in the work that, that is here at Atkinson. And then when you couple that with looking at bar graphs that show growth, that's a huge motivator because then you're actually taking that data and it, it, it confirms the good feelings that you have in your heart about the work that you're doing for kids. And I think that's probably the best way to kind of finish up this podcast. I think that's a great summary of just that the work that you're doing results in teachers really believing in it and believing that they're making a difference that we know then influences student outcomes as well. So I'd like to thank you both so much for joining us. Laura and Yvonne, is there anything you'd like to add for our listeners before we sign off? It's just quite impressive, like Yvonne said, that shared leadership and shared understanding that her entire staff have that continue the, the equity-based inclusion work that they're doing moving forward to achieve high outcomes for kids. It's just obvious in, when you walk into the doors of Atkinson. Thank you, Laura. And I would just say believe in the work, know that, you know, I mean, it's, it's such an amazing opportunity to be able to, to have this job um, to come here for kids and to do right by kids each and every day. We can't change the system, you know, all at once, but I mean, little by little, we can definitely make a difference. And, and that's kind of how I like to, to think about that. It's great. It sounds like an amazing school. Hopefully I'll get to visit sometime. But thank you both so much for your time and for sharing with us. Just to close out, if you want to know more about SWIFT implementation, please just go to swiftschools.org. You can click on the TA playbook to learn more about some of these practices or the SWIFT shelf to access some of our resources. Um, And just to remind our listeners, SWIFT is a national K-8 center that provides academic and behavioral support to promote the learning and academic achievement of all students, including students with disabilities and those with the most extensive needs. Thank you, guys. Thank you.